Well, hello everyone. Um, I hope that you can hear me. Give me a thumbs up if you can hear me, Bucky, Joe, Pete, Pippa, so that I know you can. Uh, and I'm just going to check here. To, yes. Yes, you can hear me. That's great. Um, yeah, well, um, thank you so much to uh, Joe, to Bucky, uh, to Pete and Pip for helping out with today's service. Um, God willing, it will uh, it'll be coming across okay for you guys. Um, there we go. There we are. Right. As you can tell, I am not uh, an IT technician. <laughs> and I'm very much looking forward to um, not having to do this anymore. So let's uh, let's please pray that uh, our government uh, manages to navigate all of the coronavirus um, situation with real grace and wisdom, uh, as we prayed earlier, and um, that God willing, we can get back to meeting together uh, in person as a church again, as the Lord intended. There's nothing quite like it, and. Uh, I do miss it. I miss you all. So uh, here we are in the Phillips family playroom. I've tried to sort of repurpose it as um, as a bit of a studio. Uh, I think I've done an okay job. You can't see any random toys, I hope, uh, creeping out from anywhere. Uh, but uh, you never know. So uh, today we are going to be focusing in again on our study of 1 John. So if you have your Bibles or if you are in the HCC online church website. The scripture should be there in the notes uh, or you can pull it up in the Bible tool section of that. Or if you're old school and you actually have a Bible with you, you can go to 1 John. So we're going to be in chapter 2 and verses 20 to 23 today. And I'm really actually quite excited to share this message uh, because it really hits on some interesting stuff. Uh, just in these three verses, we're going to be talking about the anointing in particular, the anointing. What is it? Um, what does it do? What's its purpose? Who has it? Um, and we're also going to be touching on the, the subject of discernment as well. What is discernment? And what does that have to do with this thing called the anointing? So I'm really pumped to get into today's study. So um, why don't we just read uh, this particular passage? I'm going to um, read you a kind of Graham Phillips translation um, from the original text from the Greek uh, into English and then we'll go from there because there are some points along the way uh, where we do have to kind of do a little bit of um, exegesis together and a bit of translation because there are some variances in between the English translations which are interesting. So I'm going to do my best to do a Graham Phillips translation and then we'll dive in from there. So children, I'm reading from verse 18, by the way. Verse 18, we'll start. Children, it is the last hour. And just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, and now many Antichrists are coming. And just as we know, that, the, and that is how we know, rather, that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they were of us, they would have remained with us. But in order that it would be revealed that they are not all of us. And you, you have an anointing from the Holy One. And you know all things. 
I did not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because any lie is not of the truth. Who is the liar, if not the one denying that Jesus is not the Christ? This one is the Antichrist, the one denying the Father and the Son. Anyone denying the Son does not have the Father. The one confessing the Son also has the Father. So that's verse 18 through until verse 23. Now the verses here in question 20 to 23, they are really a continuation of what Peter preached so well on last week, those verses that we just read, 18 and 19. They are a furtherance of the argument that John is setting out. And if you notice, actually, verse 20 there, um, John kind of steps aside from what he's been saying about the last times and about the Antichrist. He steps aside and there's a pastoral tone that comes in, isn't there? So I think he steps aside and he begins to talk to these Christians who he cares for so dearly. He steps aside and there's a pastoral tone here coming out in verse 20 and 21. And then he goes on again to address the false teachers in the final two verses in uh, 22 and 23. Let's remember also why John is writing this letter. I don't know how many of you watched the video that we saw last week, the Bible Project video, and how many of you found that helpful. I think they're fantastic videos. Um, but John is writing this letter to Christians who are still faithful, still faithful to the gospel that he taught them at first. And he's warning these Christians against the teaching of other so-called Christians who he is saying have departed from the original teachings of Christianity. Now, what's clear is that those strange things that these teachers are teaching, um, these people who are doing the teaching, who is warning them against, they certainly still think they're Christians. They think they're part of the same fold. And John is concerned. He is acting like a father, like a pastor, and uh, he is concerned that the true believers might not see them for what they are, which is false teachers. Um, and he actually goes so far as to say that they are not Christian, in fact, but they're antichrists. Very strong terms. And in fact, uh, it's actually in uh, John's Gospels and, and John's letters that we see that word used. It's not a word that appears very often in the New Testament, Antichrist, but out of all the writers of the New Testament, it's actually John who uses it um, the most. In fact, I think all the times we see it, it's written by uh, John. Now, it's important for us to take a moment again. We'll get to the application, but we've got to do a bit of background work before we get there. We have to ask the question, what made these people false teachers? What made them false teachers? What disqualified them from Christian fellowship in the eyes of the Apostle John? Well, it was their teachings. It was their teachings. It was what they were saying about Jesus. It's what they believed. It's what they taught. It wasn't that what had been taught them at first, they changed what 
had been taught them at first. They had begun to develop it. Um, they had begun to perhaps uh, mix it up a little bit and perhaps they thought they were improving it. Perhaps they thought they were making this message that John had given to them a little bit more appealing maybe um, to the world around them. Maybe they were trying to make it make more sense to the pagan culture that they lived in. Perhaps they thought it was a little bit implausible. Perhaps they needed to make it a little bit more um, comfortable for the uh, world that they lived in. Now, in a sense, these false teachers, these secessionists that Paul is sorry that John is warning against, um, these false teachers, they were the progressives of their day. Now, if you've heard about progressive Christianity, I'm not sure if you have, but progressive Christianity is very popular today. Um, in fact, you can go read a book by an author such as Rob Bell or, or Rachel Held Evans or Jen Hatmaker. Uh, these are progressive Christians. These are people who would say, yes, I believe in God and yes, I believe in Jesus and I, I love the Bible. I enjoy the Bible, but it's not the word of God. It's not the word of God. It simply contains the word of God. Um, and so what begins to happen in the, in the progressive Christian's mind is that they believe that Christianity is a message that progresses throughout time, that it takes on new qualities, that it evolves, that it becomes more relevant to people at different stages throughout time and throughout history. Whereas John is saying here, absolutely not. The message of Christianity, its core doctrines, what the thing is, remains the same. You don't change it. It's not like philosophy. If you take out one pin of Christian doctrine, the whole thing falls down. So we're talking about people who felt that they were at liberty to begin to change and develop and um, what they thought was to improve the message they'd been handed at first. They'd moved away from what we talked about in the very first week when we studied this, which was the apostolic revelation of who Jesus is, that he's the Messiah, that he's the son of God um, and that he is perfectly human and perfectly God all in one being. Now, what these false teachers were doing was they were denying Jesus's humanity. They were saying he was spiritual, but they didn't like the idea of God taking on flesh. They didn't like the idea of God sullying himself, coming down, taking on flesh, having to do stuff like you and I do, having to visit the toilet, having to make food, having to eat. That was not a palatable idea to them or to the ancient Greeks. And in fact, nowadays, it's the whole idea of the incarnation is a real struggle for many Muslims. They struggle to see how God, who is perfect, who is holy, who is impeccable, uh, how he could take on uh, corrupt, sinful flesh. Now, um, this was the same for these people. And so what they tried to do was to appease their own sensibilities. They built Jesus in their own image. It's a form of what we call idolatry, one of the sins listed uh, for us to avoid in the, the Ten Commandments. And what's important for us also to notice here is there was a division taking place in this church. There was a division taking place between one group of people who thought they were Christians and another. There was a division taking place. And in fact, this division took place because of theology. It took place because of theology. If you're not familiar with that word um, theology, it just means simply the study of God. 
the division was based on two competing ideas of who Jesus was. And in fact, this division was not something that the Apostle John thought was a good, uh, sorry, a bad thing. In fact, the Apostle John wanted the division. He wanted to separate the true believers from the false ones. Isn't that interesting? And I think um, this is something perhaps that that I, I think we don't necessarily see or understand today is that for the apostles, for the early Christians, doctrine and theology was of huge, huge importance. It really mattered to them what was taught and believed about God and about Jesus and especially about the person of Jesus. So much so that if there were other Christians or so-called Christians in a church preaching a different Jesus, the apostles said, separate yourself from those people. Don't invite, he says in John 3, I think the third epistle of John, he says, don't invite them into your home. Don't give them a welcome. Now, for us with 21st century ears on, um, when we're doing all that we can to promote unity in the body of Christ, which is a wonderful thing, those words sometimes really strike at the core of us because we think, hang on a minute, John, you know, maybe they're just a bit off on their teaching. Perhaps, you know, this is something that we can move forward together in, in disagreement. You know, we can agree to disagree. Isn't unity the most important thing here that all of us who call ourselves Christians are one? But John would say, no, it's more important that we are preaching Jesus as he is in the scriptures, the Jesus of the apostles, rather than having a false unity, which is uh, built on just simply a desire to be all together. Uh, whereas a Christian unity is built upon doctrine. Christian unity is built upon God and God as he is in the scriptures. And so it's interesting for us to note that this division is coming about because of theology, of what these people believed about Jesus. Now, Christianity, as I've said, it's different than anything else. It isn't like philosophy. It can't be morphed and changed and reshaped and still retain its identity. You can't believe in a different Jesus than the Jesus of the Bible and still call yourself a Christian. You can't take, for example, the moral example of Jesus and say, well, he was just a wonderful person. He was a very moral person, somebody that we ought to to emulate but then on the other hand deny his identity as the son of God you can't do that and still call yourself a Christian yet I can think of many people uh, who would think that's absolutely fine to do uh, there is a form of Christianity that absolutely does that that takes Jesus and embraces him as a good moral teacher but shells him of all of the supernatural stuff, supernatural stuff. Sorry, um, in fact, there's a group of scholars called the uh, the Higher Critics, um, a German bunch of scholars who do just that. They love the Jesus who teaches the Sermon on the Mount, but they hate the Jesus who rises bodily from the dead on the third day. So uh, this is happening now, um, and also you can't take the divinity of Jesus but then reject his humanity and still call yourself a Christian. You can't accept Jesus's humanity, but deny his divinity and still call yourself a Christian. You see, guys, theology matters. It matters what you believe about who Jesus is. So 
I'm going to get to the kind of nub of what I want to say now before going on uh, too long. But I honestly feel like a lot of the time when we talk about these things, when we talk about theology and we talk about doctrine and who is Jesus and everything, uh, I know for many people they just they just think, well, so what? So what? What? Why do want? Why do people want dry doctrine? Why do people just want to talk about theology? People don't come to church to hear that stuff. They come to hear how to live a successful life, how to overcome, how to be victorious. They don't want to hear dry theology. They don't want to hear a Bible passage unpacked. But I would say this to people that say that. I would say, listen, theology is practical. Theology is eminently practical. This whole letter of 1 John is practical. It's practical. It's dealing with things that matter. And this message that John's writing to these believers, do you know what the practical message is? The practical message is wake up. Wake up. Engage your brain, okay? Not everybody who says they're a Christian really is. And you know what? That's a very practical message for us to take note of today. Because there are many people in this world. The world hasn't changed dramatically. Just because we now have cars and iPhones and all of this technology... People still sin and there are still people in the world today that absolutely believe they're card-carrying Christians, but they don't believe in the Jesus of the Bible. They believe in a Jesus of their own making. You know, theology is practical. Think about this. Think about this. Maybe think about that Amazon book. Maybe you've been recommended this book on Amazon and everyone's saying how great it is and how awesome it is. Well, the question isn't, does this person call themselves a Christian? The question is, what Jesus, what Christ do they believe in? What's their confession? Is the Jesus that they believe in the same Jesus that John is telling us about here in this book? We have to be able to to make discernments, to make judgments about the teaching that we're hearing. In fact, uh, Paul says, doesn't he? He says, test the spirits, test the spirits. John says this, test the spirits, be discerning. You know, think how many of us have been disarmed by Jehovah's Witnesses. I've been out on the streets ministering to Jehovah's Witnesses. I've had them uh, come to my house. And as soon as you say to them, well, actually, I'm a Christian. I'm a born again Christian. What's the first thing they say back to you? So are we. So are we. Right. Now, (laughs) the question we have to ask is, are they? Are you? Just because somebody says they're a Christian does not necessarily mean that they are a Christian. The question we have to ask is, which Jesus do you confess? Do you confess the Jesus who is fully God, who is fully man, the one who created all things? And in the case of the Jehovah's Witness, the answer is no. They don't know that Jesus. They don't confess that Jesus. Their Jesus is a created being. In fact, they believe that Jesus was the Archangel Michael who then came and became a human. Can you believe that? I don't see that anywhere in my Bible, but that's the Jesus they believe in. They don't believe in the Jesus of the Bible. And according to the Apostle John, they're they're not just not Christians. They're antichrists. They are antichrists. You know, we heard last week Pete teaching about the antichrist. And literally this week we see it written out. The one denying that Jesus is the Christ He's the Messiah. That's what we have to understand by Christ. He's the Messiah, the promised Son of God. Those who deny that are antichrists. 
This is a very, very severe thing to say, but this is exactly what your Bible says about people that deny Jesus as being the Messiah. I'm going to read you a quote from Polycarp, who was one of the church fathers uh, from a place called Smyrna. You might have heard that name in Revelation. Polycarp said this, For everyone who shall not confess that Jesus is come in the flesh is Antichrist. And whoever shall not confess the testimony of the cross is of the devil. And whoever shall pervert the oracles of the Lord to his own lusts and say that there is neither resurrection nor judgment, that man is the firstborn of Satan. Wherefore, let us forsake the vain doing of the many and their false teachings and turn unto the word which was delivered unto us from the beginning, being sober unto prayer and constant in fastings, entreating the all-seeing God with supplications that he may bring us not into temptation. According as the Lord said, the spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. Amen. So what is the Apostle's confidence then? What's his confidence that these dear Christians that he's writing to uh, are not going to succumb to this false teaching? What's his confidence? Is his confidence in their ability to remember what was handed to them? Is his confidence in their, in their ability to understand what's being written now? Well, interestingly, it's not. Watch this. In verse 20, his confidence, his reason for believing that these believers are going to be okay, that they're not going to get turned aside by this false teaching, is the anointing. It's the anointing. In fact, if we look at the... So I'm getting told to slow down. I'm getting told to slow down by my wife. Sorry about that. <laughs> I will slow down. <laughs> um, I was on a preach as well, babe. And now... <laughs> you can't stop the anointing you can't stop the anointing that's what I believe anyway I will try and slow down though um, verse 20 he says this he says but you you have an anointing you have an anointing immediately after saying that many antichrists have gone out into the world he's concerned that they are going to be led astray that they're going to be drawn aside by this group of Christians in their own fellowship that's withdrawn. He's worried, but he, he doesn't say to them, but you are good at remembering what I taught you. He doesn't say your theological understanding puts you in the best position possible. He doesn't say that, does he? It's very interesting. He says, but you, you have an anointing. Now, Here's where we have to get a bit technical and look at the translations because the ESV, if you have that, is a wonderful translation, but it translates verse 20 as, but you have been anointed by the Holy One. You have been anointed by the Holy One, it says, and it renders the anointing as something that has happened. It has happened to you, to the believer. But the Greek doesn't actually say that. If we want to be really technical, the Greek makes the anointing the present possession of the believer. It's a possession. In fact, it says, which literally means, but you, you have an anointing. It's emphatic and it's telling them you are in possession of something powerful. You're in possession of it. The thrust of that clause in verse 20 is on the anointing rather than on the believer. So I think the New King James probably translates this correctly, in my humble opinion, 
which just simply says, but you have an anointing from the Holy One. So this anointing that John's speaking of, it's something that every believer has. It's in your possession. It's something that you have hold of. It's not just something that has happened to us. You see, with baptism, we could say, but I have been baptised, right? But we wouldn't say, I have a baptism, would we? Whereas John is saying, you have an anointing. It's something you carry presently with you. And according to John, it's something that is of use. This anointing is of use in protecting you against the spirit of the Antichrist, against false teaching. And he says this, which is amazing. Every Christian, every single Christian is in possession of this thing called the anointing. It isn't something that some believers get to have, but not others. It isn't something that you need to to activate, right? It's something that you have. It's not something you need another impartation of. You don't need a fresh impartation of anointing. It's something you have right now. And guess what? It's been given to you by the Holy One. It's been given to you by Jesus, by God. Sometimes those two are indistinguishable in John, as we heard last week. He'll refer to the Holy One. It could be John. Sorry, it could be God. It could be Jesus. Now, sometimes when we talk about the anointing, we might talk about a preacher being anointed. Or maybe we'll say, you know, that worship service was a really anointed. And I get what we mean by that. But here, John is talking about nothing other. When he says the anointing, he's talking about nothing other than the Holy Spirit himself. The Holy Spirit on you as a possession in your life. I love what William Tyndale says. William Tyndale was a, a reformer um, back in the 15th century, late 15th, I think. Um, and he said this, ye are not anointed with oil in your bodies, but with the spirit of Christ in your souls, which spirit teacheth you all truth in Christ and maketh you to judge what is a lie and what truth and to know Christ from Antichrist. Now you have, we have this anointing from Jesus. We have this charisma from the Christos. You see the wordplay there that, that John is building. We have Jesus Christ, Jesus Christos, and we have us having a charisma. And then we have these people over here called the Antichristos. Okay, you can see there's a play on words building. And so what is this anointing and how have we come by it? We've come by it. We've come by it because of this mystical union that we have with Jesus. How many of you think about that? Like, we aren't just people who believe in Jesus. We're not people who just try and live a better life and go to church. And that's what being a Christian is. According to the Bible, we have been buried with Christ. We have died with Christ and we have been risen to life with Christ and we are anointed with Christ. There's this thing called the mystical union between the believer and Jesus. So everything that's happened to Christ has happened to you. It's not just poetic license, you know. So this anointing is is come to you because Jesus was anointed above all of his companions with the oil of gladness says psalm 45 verse 7 and that's you and i we share in that anointing jesus was anointed if you read in luke 4 
he quotes from Isaiah, doesn't he? Uh, the 61st, 61st chapter, he says, um, the spirit of the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind. So that's how we've come by this anointing. It's come by us and we we possess it now today because you are literally alive in Christ. You were born into him. And so the life you now live right now and will live forever is lived in Christ and everything he has you share. His righteousness, his peace, uh, his holiness is something you're growing in. His anointing, his baptism, uh, his freedom from sin. These are all things that we partake of to one degree or another in this life and will inherit forever in uh, eternal life. Now, I want to just take a moment to to make a, an observation. The anointing in the Old Testament, you know we read about anointing in the Old Testament, there's those cool verses about, you know, oil dripping down beards and stuff like that, you know. I've got some beard oil. Um, it's not olive oil though, but uh, I am starting to have to wear it. Bucky, you're going to need to wear some soon, mate, with that with that cheeky little tash you've got on, uh, going on there. You're doing Movember? Is that what's going on? He's laughing. You can't see him, but I can see his cheeky face. Anyway, um, being anointed in the Old Testament meant being set apart, didn't it? You know, if you were anointed by a prophet to be a king, you, you had oil uh, on your head, you were anointed, and that set you apart for the purpose that God had given you. You could be anointed as a priest, uh, like Aaron was. You could be anointed as a prophet, um, so those are the three offices that would be uh, anointed, which was priest, prophet and king. And so when Jesus is baptized by John, and he comes up. Do you remember in the Bible, he comes up out of the River Jordan and the heavens open, don't they? And there's a dove that comes down and rests on him, showing this moment of anointing with the Holy Spirit. And the father says, behold, my son in whom I am well pleased. I think, and I believe that this is consistent revelation across the people that I read, theologians and the like, the anointing, God's anointing on your life is a seal. It's a seal of the promise. And moreover, it's a sign of God's election. It's a sign that you are elect. God elected to save his people through Jesus and through no one else. And so the Holy Spirit's anointing on Jesus was a sign of that. It was a sign that the Father has chosen the Son to bring to him a people uh, holy and righteous before him. Uh, his anointing was a sign of God's choice. And so for all Christians, for all of us here today, that anointing of the Spirit on our lives is a sign that we have been chosen by Christ. It's a mark that sets us apart from the rest of the world. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that incredible? It's, it's a mark of your choosing that you've been chosen by God. And moreover, Jesus's baptism and his anointing from the Holy Spirit, that was the fulfillment, wasn't it, of all the Old Testament anointings. Jesus is the ultimate high priest, he's the ultimate king, he's the ultimate prophet, and he was anointed into those roles and he will hold them forever. Now, when you and I enter into Christ, we share that same anointing. You have been called to be prophetic you've been called and we as a church have been called to prophesy to the nations isn't that amazing we have been anointed also 
to be high priests, to, sorry, to be priests, uh, living stones, okay? We are to minister to God in worship, in praise, uh, in, by the word of God, in preaching, to, uh, to build up his bride into a place of beauty, ready for that marriage, ready for that great and awesome day. Also, we've been anointed not just to be in the kingdom of God, but the Bible says to rule and reign with Christ. Isn't that amazing? I don't always feel waking up in the morning with my back hurting like I've been anointed to reign with King Jesus. But that's exactly what has happened. <laughs> so you have been anointed to reign with Jesus. And that's what life looks like right now. And that's what life will continue to look like and grow in to eternity is reigning with Christ in his heavenly kingdom. Athanasius is somebody that I, I recommend you should read. An incredible guy, um, stubborn as an ox. It, they, there's a, a work called Athanasius Contra Mundum. Basically, there was a time in church history when basically there's one dude that was standing for orthodoxy and his name was Athanasius and everyone disagreed with him and everyone hated him and he just fought his corner. He fought his corner hard and um, it, and apparently it got quite heated as well. He was well worth reading, Athanasius, and he said this, For when the Lord as man was washed in the Jordan, it was we who were washed in him and by him. And when he received the Spirit, we, it was, who were by him made recipients of it. Moreover, for this reason, not as Aaron or David or the rest, he was anointed with oil, but in another way, above his fellows with the oil of gladness, which he himself interprets to be the spirit, saying by the prophet Isaiah, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news. Now, there's more to this. It's not just the fact that you have been anointed, but John says the reason for that anointing and what it actually does is that you know all things. It's that you might know all things. Uh, the Greek is kai odate pantes, right? Pantes. It's not pants, Bucky. Don't laugh, okay? There are two schools of thought on this translation, basically. You know, you've got that in verse 20, and it says, and you have an anointing, and you know all things. Maybe you'll have that translation. Um, but there is another translation which says, and you all know. I think if you have the NASB, or the NIV, it, it will say, um, and you all know. Um, I'm not actually persuaded by that translation. Um, the more obvious one is that you know all things. And so that's a pretty crazy thing to say, isn't it, really? That because of this anointing, you know all things. I, I, I don't often think of the Holy Spirit like that in terms of a teacher who teaches me things. Um, does that mean that you can become sorry it's my dogs <laughs> live streaming those are the perks um, <laughs> thank you so does the fact that the Holy Spirit and his anointing on you can cause you to know all things does that mean I can become an instant rocket scientist well unfortunately sadly for aspiring astronauts um, John doesn't quite mean that he means you know all things pertaining to Jesus Christ and who he is. The anointing is what you have that's teaching you about Jesus. You possess it 
And in fact, you know, in John 16, where Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit, who's going to come, he says, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you in all truth. The Holy Spirit is a teacher. So does that mean then that my job's redundant? You know, Pastor G can resign. Well, not quite yet, because <laughs> because John is actually writing to these believers and he's telling them this stuff. OK, but I think what it means is this, is that the true believer has a GPS built into their hearts. It's called the anointing. OK, and this anointing guides and leads them into truth about Jesus. They're protected from false teaching and the antichrist does that mean that sometimes in their life in the life of a christian you can kind of get sidetracked and uh, into some stuff that's a bit kind of fruity yeah that can happen but ultimately that anointing is going to lead you back to jesus and never let you go astray it's an assurance it's wonderful that anointing on your life enables you to stay true to jesus christ to know him and not to swerve off i think what gives me hope uh, before I finish, what gives me hope about all this is that the Lord is able to keep you safe from all false teaching. And there's a lot of it out there. There's a lot of it out there. And even if things get a bit squiffy for a time, he can bring you back. And I, I think it's important to recognize that everybody it's it's a bit serious and sobering but everybody is susceptible to false teaching <clears throat> it's out there and intellect doesn't protect you um reading all the books that come by you doesn't protect you being super smart being hyper spiritual none of it protects you it's only the lord and that anointing on, on your life that he gave you that that truly keeps you safe from it um, and there's an example of that actually which keeps me humble which is uh the example of a man called augustine we've talked about him a bit um over the last few months augustine is widely acknowledged to be one of the brightest people to have ever lived whether you're a christian or not um, an incredible mind and he wrote a book called confessions now, Augustine, uh, he lectured in Milan, he lectured in Rome at the time, uh, he lectured in Carthage, very bright guy. But you know what? Before he became truly saved, he believed some absolutely banana stuff. He was, he was, um, uh, the name escapes me now, uh, but he believed effectively uh, that he needed to feed physically feed a group of people called the elect the right food and by this group of people eating the right food that somehow the kingdom of god was going to come um that's a crazy thing to believe that's insane we wouldn't think about anything can you imagine can you you know if if we could just feed pastor g all of the right food just make sure he gets all the best food in his belly you know all those burgers all those fries hallelujah the world's going to be a better place None of you would believe that. That's completely implausible. But one of the brightest men in the history of the earth believed that. But God eventually brought him round and brought him to a saving knowledge of who Jesus really is. So nobody's safe from this stuff. But the encouragement is this. You have an anointing. That anointing in your life enables you to test 
the spirits. That's what discernment is, okay? And I want for us as a church, I'm speaking pastorally now, I want for us to do discernment, okay? And I want for us to do it personally and as a family. Every time we're listening to teaching, this goes for me too, I'm weighing that teaching against the Word of God, against the Bible. And we ask questions, okay? We use discernment. I know that I'm a pastor, but I would encourage you, if there are things I say that are hard or that you don't understand, ask me questions about it. I would rather that than people hear it and stay silent um, and then years later bring something to me and say, well, well, didn't you say this? And that didn't really make sense to me. We're to be using that anointing to discern the spirits, to keep us knowing the Jesus of the Gospels, knowing the Jesus of the Bible, uh, to bring us into fellowship with him. So let's pray and then I'm going to hand back over to Pippa. I want to encourage you with that today is that this anointing in your life is not something that happened once as an event. The Holy Spirit is with you right now, right now. And there is a relationship that you have with him, that he's speaking to you. He's teaching you. Uh, There are things that the Holy Spirit for many of you is beginning to uh, show you right now. And you'll know that this is happening. You'll start reading your Bible and having a new thirst to know who Jesus is. You will start watching tons of YouTube videos, more than's good for you, uh, about theology and doctrine and all those things. And uh, and that is the Holy Spirit teaching you. Now, if, uh, if there is an acknowledgement in your heart today that uh, perhaps, you know, I haven't been using the gift of discernment. I, maybe I have been listening to um, things that I know um, aren't particularly savvy uh, theologically or I just haven't been operating with any discernment at all you know and I've, I've just accepted everybody's word that everyone's a Christian and everything I hear with the name Jesus in has got to be good for me well now's the time to repent and to ask Jesus to help you to change your way of living as a Christian, to protect yourself, to invite the Holy Spirit to begin to guide you into all truth and to use that wonderful spiritual gift. And it is a supernatural gift of discernment to ask the question, is this person, is this book teaching me the Jesus of the Bible, the Jesus who is fully man, fully God, the Christ, the Messiah, Jesus Is that what is teaching me? So let's pray right now. Father God, we thank you that although this subject matter is sometimes a little bit intense uh, and it's not always very comfortable to be talking about false teaching. But Lord, we acknowledge it's something that you in your providence wanted us to know. And you wanted us as your children to know how to be protected from it. And so, Lord God, we thank you for sending us your Holy Spirit who leads us supernaturally into all truth. Father, I thank you that it is a daily walk of hearing the Spirit of God, hearing his teaching, being open to go where he leads. And I pray this week, Lord God, that if there's anything, any teaching that we've been listening to that we know hasn't been doing us any good, or we haven't asked enough questions of it, and we know maybe it's time to stop listening to that, then Father, show us how to do that. Show us uh, how to begin to operate in this gift of discernment with the Holy Spirit. I pray, Lord God, that we'd be protected 
um, in our journey with you. I pray that the enemy's fiery darts uh, of, of little whispers that come to sometimes try and throw us off track in our walk with Jesus. I pray that they would be extinguished, that we'd be dressed and clad in the full armour of God and that there would be no gaps in between our armour. We pray this in Jesus' name. I pray Holy Spirit come in power right now, wherever we are in our homes, come in power upon us. Fill us afresh in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. I'm going to hand back over to Pippa and we're going to uh, finish up with a little bit of worship just now. Thank you, Pip.